Matt Redman tells the story behind his popular song called Heart of Worship. He says it came as a result of his pastor doing something pretty bold. Perhaps you've heard this story. The pastor was concerned about what he sensed was an apathy that was, that was coming from the congregation and, and the praise team. And, and Matt says maybe even a little pride in leadership from the praise team that, that the pastor was sensing. He recalls that the pastor decided to get rid of the sound system and the band for an entire season, and we gathered together with just our voices. His point was that we'd lost our way in worship. And the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away. The pastor wanted his church to engage in worship, not just be consumers of a product. He asked a question of the congregation. Matt says, it changed the way they viewed worship. He asked them, when you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? This question started off, he said at first, with with silence from the congregation. But, But soon people began to experience God in fresh ways through breaking out in spontaneous worship and prayers from the heart. Before long, he says, we reintroduced the musicians and the sound system as we'd gained a new perspective that worship is all about Jesus. And he commands a response in the depths of our souls, no matter what the circumstances and setting. Matt says, the heart of worship simply describes what occurred. And I would suggest to you this morning, my my brothers and sisters, that, that we as the people of God, like, like Matt Redman and his congregation, like, like every person who believes in God on the face of this earth, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, we can get caught up in our lives. And life, as we face it every day, causes us to lose focus upon the life for which we were created. So on this communion Sunday morning, we're going to spend a few minutes together looking at at Psalm 138 this morning. I decided that it it just seems fitting that for these four Sundays in August, we we would take a look at four different psalms from some of the categories of psalms because... The Psalms do us a favor in that they bring our God into every dimension of life. Every circumstance, every emotion and, and feeling, which, which is just exactly where God needs to be. The book of Psalms for centuries was the worship book of Israel. It brought the people back again and again and again to the heart of worship, was, which, which was that recognition of God in this world. Very present, very active, very involved, very interested in His world, very interested in the people 
whom he had created for himself, and it reminded those of those who knew him, it reminded them of the privileged relationship that his people had with him. And, and at the heart of that relationship, the core, the foundation, I think, is worship. And so we're going to focus just on a, on a couple of very brief but profound truths from this psalm that I believe fuels a heart of worship for the people of God, both individually and collectively. So stand with me this morning and let's read Psalm 138 together. Here we go. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. When I called, you answered me. You greatly emboldened me. May all the kings of the earth praise you, Lord, when they hear what you have decreed. May they sing of the ways of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is great. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. The Lord will vindicate me. Your love, Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. So, do we have any closet Presbyterians in our midst this morning? Some of you who have Presbyterian history in your spiritual journey. Uh, can, can you, those of you, those of you who might know it, can you tell us what the the first question of the Westminster Catechism is, the, the shorter catechism, which is, is a confession of faith. Um, anyone know that question? Allie, what do you think? Woo! Rachel, let's put that up. What is the chief end of man? Now, ladies, I just want to apologize ahead of time. You are included in this statement. It was written in 1647. And... You know, esteem of women wasn't really on the horizon at that point. But it is. It is today and it is now. So what is the chief end? Some of the, some of the versions, depending on, on who you read, what is the chief or what is the, the highest end of man? It's the question of purpose. What's the purpose of humanity? Why are we here? Ever wonder? There are a lot of folks who do. Why are we here? Oh, put our answer up there. Thank you. Man, there's a lot of you closet prezies in here, aren't there? Ah. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That the purpose of humanity is to glorify God. 
God created human beings to bring glory to himself and to enjoy him forever. Now, we may not agree necessarily with all of the teaching points of the Westminster Catechism. There are 107 of them, by the way. Question and answer format. But you have to admit that those old Presbyterians, sometimes referred to as the divines, well, they got off to a really good start with that first one. It's what separates us from the beasts. Our ability to live with awareness in a relationship with God, our Creator. Worshiping Him, that is, is what we were created to do. Let that settle in for just a moment. We were created by God to glorify Him, which comes out of a relationship of knowing Him and worshiping Him. That is the purpose of your life. You may do a lot of things in your life, None is more important than that. You may be a lot of things in your life, in various relationships and roles and responsibilities. None of them carries greater worth. None of them gives you greater value than that. Created by God to glorify Him. We as Imago Dei, humans created in the image of God, have the ability to think purposefully about our existence, about our, our place in life. We, <laughs> we have the ability to contemplate what is it about this life that makes it life. Now, I don't want this to be offensive to any of you animal lovers, but that is not anything that my dog could ever do. Spent 15 years living closely with that animal. Never got the sense of those things being important to him. <laughs> Except for Steve's dog. Annie is brilliant. What can I say? Self-contemplative canine, right? We were created in the image of God, my friends, with the capacity to reflect and to consider larger and deeper things. We just spent a couple of months in 1 John, and, and we read and we felt the old apostles' great love and, and passion for Jesus. It was so important, you remember, to, to John, that, that, that those whom he had pastored, and those perhaps at the time of the writing of that letter who he was, he was still pastoring, it was so important to him that that they who claim to be followers of Jesus not think for a moment that Jesus did not really come in the flesh. The miracle of God in the flesh for John, and I would say for all of those first apostles, particularly after that first Pentecost Sunday when the Spirit of God filled them and empowered them and, and, and began to, to bring to life the, the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus in them. God in the flesh was just 
unbelievable beyond description. It was kind of fun to, to walk through 1 John together and, and, and see John wrestle with that. God in the flesh. For John, having a relationship with God was all about knowing Jesus, and we learned that. Because Jesus came, God in the flesh, to redeem lost people back into the relationship for which they had been created. So, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of humanity? It's to glorify God through the relationship in which they live with Him, and Jesus makes that possible. Now, this is not new news, right? We know this. And we know, we know that we, we need to bring glory to God in our lives. We, we understand that God desires for us to bring glory to Him. We understand that, that Jesus lived His life as not only our Savior, but an example of a perfect and holy, obedient life. Jesus lived for the glory of His Father. He was very clear about that. We know that. But here's a really important question. Rachel, let's put that one up there. How do we enjoy God? Or maybe a better way to ask it is, do we enjoy God? Or maybe we should ask, is it even right to think about enjoying God? That sounds a little casual to me. Maybe a little dangerous. Is it permitted to enjoy God? All right. Ask your neighbor what they think about enjoying God. Is it okay? How do we? Should we? Is it right to even think about this? Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more together. <laughs> so what do you think? Somebody start us off. This idea of enjoying God. Yes. Can you hear Lee? Eric Liddell. The, uh, the, the English runner, chariots of fire. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. We should enjoy God for who he is and not, for just what, not just for what he gives to us. I'd go with that. And don't you think that for some of us, that's a little creepy? <laughs> some, some of us have never... I mean, what, I, I, I've spent a lot of my life not thinking of God in those kinds of tender terms. But the truth is, the scripture is full of that, that imagery. The Psalms in particular. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think I have a clue for us this morning. It's just my clue. Good, good. And, and, I, and I like where you took us on that. Recognizing that the presence and the gifting, the blessing of God in all aspects that are good in creation and in humanity. Fellowship of believers. Enjoyment of God. Yeah, the, the two seem to go pretty closely together, don't they? We certainly see it happening a lot around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, who, who are facing that kind of thing. I, I really believe that God does want us to enjoy Him. And, and I, believe that, I believe that enjoying Him really begins with glorifying Him. Now, just a, a couple of words about that word. In, in, in the Hebrew, the word for God's glory is 
It's tied with the idea of, of, of hugeness, if you will. Um, almost a, uh, some translators give it a, a weightiness. Uh, the idea that, that God is a heavy weight. It's the idea that there is nothing that my God cannot do. There is nothing too hard for my God. There is nothing that is beyond my God's ability to transform and redeem. There is nothing that my God cannot do in my life in order to to bring the blessing and the awareness of His presence more closely to me. It's, it's, it's His weightiness. So, so the, the, the Hebrew language implies the idea to, to take Him as a lightweight, big mistake. Which of course is, is the story that's, that's unfolded for us in all of the Old Testament. You know, who, who is this God? Well, he's, he's like no other God. He is the only God. He is the true God. And so, when we talk about bringing glory to God, what's the purpose of humanity? To glorify God. Well, to glorify God is to give Him His proper place and His space in our lives precisely because He's a heavyweight. And that's where he deserves to be, at the center of everything. I think I've probably told some of you this story, but I, I remember my, my first couple of years that I was here, um, someone was, was expressing concern about the length of our worship services. Granted, we, we do run a little long from time to time. The pastor is a little long-winded. He, he'd like you to believe that he's working on that, but that could probably be a lie. Um, but this individual said to me, you know, I think that we could probably do everything that we need to do, everything we need to do, and wrap it up in 45 minutes. That's kind of how I responded, Zach. Wow. So, being the genius that I am, I said, well, let's, let's do some math here. Just real quickly. I'm pretty sure there's 168 hours in every week. Yep. So, what you're thinking is, is that we'll take three quarters of an hour and we'll commit that to a time of worshiping together as the people of God. And, and then we're, we're done with that for the week, and we get the other 167 and one-quarter hours to ourselves. He didn't really like that math. I, frankly, I thought it was great math. Um, and my, my response was thinking that, again, to refer back to my dog and, and who he was and his inability to think like we do. Of course, Steve, yours is the exception. <laughs> that, you know, there are times when my dog would just be driving me nuts, you know, and, and wanted to,
go out and wanted to go exercise. And, and as dogs are inclined to do, they, they like to be with their masters. And, and I suggested to this person that, you know, that's a little bit like throwing a bone to your dog and hoping that somehow he'll be distracted and leave you alone so that you can get on about your business. We glorify God, my brothers and sisters. We glorify Him by worshiping Him. And that is both individually and collectively. And, and when I talk about worship collectively, what comes to our minds is this setting because this is what we do. But, but a life of worship, a life of worship is really rooted in the, the old English idea of worship, which really has to do with worth, worthship. To worship God means to give the heavyweight his place. It means to recognize his worth. It is giving him the place in our lives that he deserves and then living that out in our attitudes and our actions. It is making God the central focus of life because he is the central focus. And God's people are those who are called to bring glory to Him by recognizing that truth. And ultimately, according to, to God's goodness and, and His plan, being a part of the redemptive work of bringing humanity back into that awareness to be a child of God, we've said many, many times, is just an unbelievable privilege. And worship of God, placing Him at, on, on the center stage in our lives and, and, and turning all the spotlights on Him, that's the way we communicate to the world who He is and what He has done. That is worshiping Him. That is putting him where he deserves. And I think there's a key attitude that, that fuels worship and, and glorifies God. And, and, and several of you have, have touched on it. I, I think it brings us to a place of even greater enjoyment of God. And that is praise and thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for. You know... One writer says, if God never did another good thing for any of us, I think this might have been Juan Carlos Ortiz, if he never did anything else good for us, we could spend the rest of our lives giving him thanks for what he's already done. I read this week about a region in Mexico where there are hot and cold springs side by side. We, we have some similar kinds of springs in, in the Rockies. The Mexican women bring their laundry to the springs. They boil them in the hot spring, and then they rinse them in the cold spring. Well, the story that I read was of a tourist who saw this happening, and he commented to his guide, he said, wow, he said, they must think that Mother Nature is generous to supply them with more than enough hot and cold water. The guide said, no, there's actually much grumbling, because she supplies no soap. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we have much to be thankful for. If God never did another thing for us, we have plenty to keep us thankful for the rest of our lives.
Expressing praise and thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he has done is the key to a life of enjoying God. We've had our little granddaughter Leo with us for a few days. Man, that is, that is a tornado in the house. <clears throat> and of course, we want her to learn the importance of, of saying thank you. And, and she's, she's doing really pretty well with that. And now, why is that important? Why is it important that she learn to, to say thank you? Is it because her grandmother and I are so worth thanking? Well, sometimes we probably are, from a human perspective. But really, what's more important is that it, it helps begin the possibility in her two-year-old tyrannical mind that maybe life is not all about her after all. And that's really hard for her to understand. But at this age, her life is all about her. David wrote this, knowing that the difference between a two-year-old's heart and his adult heart was not very much difference. I will praise you, O Lord. I will praise you, O Lord. With all my heart, before the gods, I will sing your praise. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. David isn't offering some of his heart. 10% of my heart, O Lord, I tithe to you for all that you have done. No. David says, I will praise you with all of my heart. Seems to me that there are, there are two things that are instructive for us in this. First, David is making a decision to praise the Lord. It is a decision. To, to give praise and to give thanks to the Lord is a decision. David's not being haphazard. He's not being whimsical about his praise and thanks. <clears throat> he is making a commitment. He's making a promise to the Lord that he will praise him. And he puts it in writing for all to see. I don't know if he knew at the time that all were going to see it, but there it is. We see it. Praise and thanksgiving to God are a decision that we make. And it can be such a challenging decision as, as some of the conversation suggested for us as God's people. When we are faced with difficult circumstances in life, praise and thanks to God, not necessarily the first things that come to mind. And so being people who, who routinely on a regular basis Make that commitment and that recommitment. I am going to be a person who gives praise and thanks to my God regardless of the circumstances. You see, because, and, and you know this, many of you, for the ancient Hebrew mindset, the heart, the heart was that place of feeling and emotion. The heart was the place of betrayal. David knew there would be times when he did not feel like it. So Lord... 50% of my heart is not up to this, maybe even a greater percentage given the day and, and the circumstances, but I am determined to praise and thank you no matter what. No matter what. David also wrote in Psalm 22, an interesting verse, verse 3, where he says, you are enthroned to God, you are enthroned as the Holy One, you are the praise of Israel. Some translators render that, or 
God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. Carries with it the idea that, and we've heard this phrase before, that God inhabits the praise of his people. God inhabits the praise of his people because when I'm facing, when we are facing life, we have, we have a choice. We can, we can groan and, and, and grumble and, and wish that stuff was different, wish that God had done something different, but he didn't. Or we can embrace the goodness of God in all circumstances because he remember, is good and is capable of bringing good and redemption through everything and is at work doing that, we can choose to be people who give praise and thanks. And when we do that, we are remembering his place in our lives. Because he's not just the God of the good times. He's the God of the hard times too. But, but we know those those verses in Scripture. We know Romans 8. We know Hebrews 12. We know that, that God is, 1 Peter 4, that God is at work in the hard stuff, the trials, the circumstances, because He loves us. Because He's molding and shaping our character. And so, the choice is one of essentially bringing glory to God and will my heart follow along? And I think that that's why that verse from Psalm 22 is so, so beautiful. God inhabits the praises of his people. I think there is a sense I've experienced that I know many of you have experienced in your lives in which when we offer our praise and our thanksgiving to God in the midst of the hard times, he meets us in ways that we could not have anticipated. And, and I don't say this as a Rub the genie bottle three times and you'll get what you wish. We are leaning into God's word so that we might experience his life-giving presence in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. So it's, it's, a, it's a decision. A heart that is committed to worship is a heart that gives praise and thanks to God. The story of Scripture reminds us God is actively involved, as I said earlier, in every part of our lives. He's not absent when things are hard, nor, nor is He just simply an add-on. He's, he's the reason that we have life. And his greatest desire is that His people recognize and praise Him for who He is, <clears throat> even in the ups and the downs of life. Wholehearted praise and thanks is key to enjoying God. But there's, there's another thing that I think is very instructive here, and it's that next line <clears throat> where he says, Before the gods, I will sing your praise. Before the gods. Now, more than likely, you know, David was living in the you know, 7th, 8th century uh, Middle East. He was aware of the gods of the land. He knew of the Canaanite gods. He knew of the, the Philistine gods. And, and it's, these words carry a sense of David knows that his heart is vulnerable. 
David reflects perhaps on past experiences in his life where he gave into the vulnerability of his heart and the temptation of the enemy and bought into the idea that some other God, small g, would bring him satisfaction and fulfillment. David says, no, not now. At least on this day, he had learned his lesson. I will praise you in the presence of the other gods. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. What did the Israelites struggle with again and again and again? Well, they struggled with embracing and worshiping false gods in the land in order to receive blessings in daily life. Sacrifice for good crops, sacrifice for healthy children, sacrifice for a happy marriage. The problem with false gods is they're false. They don't satisfy. They, they, don't, they don't scratch that soul's itch for the soul that has relationship with God as Father. They have no ability to change things. So David's commitment to sing praises to his God before the gods, I think, is a, is a blatant rejection of anything or anyone that called to any part of his heart. Sisters and brothers, there are gods all around us every day. Every day. The God of success. The God of popularity. The God of prosperity and ambition. The God of of lust and attraction. The God of achievement. The God of health and fitness and personal reputation. To name a few. The gods of our age abound and they call to our hearts and they make promises that they cannot keep. Are we willing to recognize them for what they are? Are we willing to to realize that to, to give any of our heart to any other God is to sacrifice the enjoyment of blessed relationship with Him. We were created by Him and for Him, and there is nothing that will satisfy our souls like Him. Absolutely nothing. Created by God, for God, to bring glory to God, and to enjoy Him forever. Now, here's what really grabbed me this week as I was thinking about this. Again, you know, here's David, 7th, 8th century B.C. He doesn't know a hoot about Jesus. You know, he has an idea of of a Messiah, of God's appointed one. Uh, There is certainly prevalent, uh, and more in other places than others in the Old Testament, the, the, the messianic promise that there is a day that is coming. But the writer of Hebrews, Paul in Romans, talks about those things being pretty unclear to the ancients. Yet here's here's David, embracing God, making a willful decision to praise and thank God and to to blatantly disregard the other gods in the presence of his God. And he didn't even know 
really know how wonderful our God is because he didn't have the revelation of the God-man, Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh, the one, if I can go back to John again, the one whom John was so excited about, the one whom made all the difference in John's life, the one who revealed the heart of God. Remember John's words, God is love. And this is how we know what love is. He gave his one and only son. He sent his one and only son to be that sacrifice for our sin. Wow. May we be a people who allow the revelation of God in Jesus to captivate us, to wow us, to cause us to spend more time sitting, standing, kneeling, falling on our faces in awe of a God like that. Amen?